This morning we are turning chiefly to Genesis 22, although if you want to jot down the note, we will also be turning uh, to James chapter 2, to Hebrews chapter 6, and Hebrews chapter 11 um, as we look at this message here. But this morning, to Genesis chapter 22, you'll find this on page 19 in your pew Bible. Remember last week we looked at sort of the framing event at the beginning of Abraham's life, and this morning we will consider one of the concluding events of Abraham's life. But Genesis 22, this is the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So for the reading of God's word, may he guide us this morning as we consider that. Let's ask him to bless our study of this powerful chapter. Heavenly Father, we turn to your word this morning, knowing that you have revealed your truth You've revealed yourself, you have revealed your ways. And so, Father, as we sort through this very challenging text, 
We pray, Lord, that you would fix our eyes more squarely on your promises and indeed fix them more firmly upon our Savior Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb, the spotless Lamb. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the story of God testing Abraham, the story that we just read this morning, is really one of the most famous narratives in all of Scripture. There's sort of famous stories, famous psalms, famous poems that people can remember very easily. And this one is striking how famous it is. Um, Jews and Christians both find this to be one of the central passages for their uh, respective faiths. Even, even Muslims in the Quran have a version of Abraham sacrificing his son. What's amazing, though, is even people of no religious persuasion whatsoever... Literary scholars at universities look at this passage as one of the great pieces of world literature. Interesting quote coming from a a literary scholar from Yale University in the early 1900s, Eric Auerbach, uh, said that the storytelling style of Genesis 22 is equally ancient and equally epic to the storytelling genius of Homer. Homer famous for the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's a well-known story. It's very, uh, very widely attested for its literary artistry. Although the thing is, not everybody is as equally convinced of the profundity of this story here. Beginning with the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, people began to question this story. Two, two main things. First of all, Kant said, what kind of a man would agree to kill his son? And secondly, Kant said, What kind of a God would command a father to do such a thing? Now Kant, was was his way, uh, isolated this passage from the theological and the literary context that we're going to talk about this morning, and instead he reinterpreted it as merely an ethics parable. In fact, that was sort of Kant's uh, M.O. there. He, He tended to see the chief thing about religion, in fact, the chief thing about Christianity, as being morality as being ethics. And so this became an ethics parable wherein both God and Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham fared very poorly because in Immanuel Kant's reading, God became a bloodthirsty dictator of sorts and Abraham became a negative example for following such a murderous command. Now, if that was just some philosopher from way back when that none of us have ever met or even heard the name of before, we might not think much of it. And yet the thing is, many non-Christians today dismiss the God of the Bible as a divine child abuser. You'll even find many of the so-called new atheists who come out very stridently against the Christian faith, citing this passage as an example for why Christianity isn't just benign, but is outright dangerous. You'll hear some of these voices even, even saying in the, in the media that Christians and Jews are untrustworthy because they believe in stories like these. And some of the more extreme voices even say that the government should perhaps remove children from Christian and Jewish homes lest they be indoctrinated into this kind of thing. The ghost of Immanuel Kant still lives among many people. In fact, it's... Interesting how often we turn to a passage like this and may even find ourselves bristling. 
to wonder how much of Kant may have dribbled into our own thinking. Thing is, though, Christians have never accepted Kant's critique. And when Christians turn to a passage like Genesis 22, we actually find something very different. We find the heart of the Christian gospel in these verses. Now, on the one hand, the New Testament looks back on this. Let me have you turn to James chapter 2, as we were mentioning. The, The New Testament looks back on this story to illustrate how true faith not only justifies us, right? True faith not only, cha- not only uh, unites us to Christ and thereby where we find our justification, our pronouncement of innocence in Him, but rather true faith is also accompanied by thanksgiving. It is accompanied by those good works that God Himself is working in us that testify to a watching world of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. Look at James chapter 2 here. Let me read just a few select verses. Starting at verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And down to verse 17, he says, Also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And a few verses later, verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? James doesn't mince any words here, does he? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was it not Abraham, I'm sorry, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now the interpretation of this verse is really uh, one of the chief reasons the Reformation was as fierce as it was. Why the Reformers argued as they did against the Roman Catholic Church. Because the Roman Catholic Church turned to a passage like this and said that, Oh, you Reformers with your doctrine of sola fide being justified by faith alone... You're fundamentally wrong because Paul, I'm sorry, James says that Abraham was not justified by faith alone. Aha! Of course, the reformers didn't roll over and say, oh, you got us. We had a good run. But no, the reformers said absolutely wrong. Abraham's justification by works is a different thing than what Paul is getting at. They rightly saw that James was discussing something related to, yes, though different from Paul. Because Paul, especially in Romans 3.28, was describing how God justifies people. What God looks at when he sees someone. And God is looking for faith alone. A faith that he himself works in his elect. James is doing something different, even though he's using that same language. James is talking about what other people see when they look at people who belong to God. When James uses the word justification, he's using a term that almost could mean more like confirmation to other humans. And you know how we know this is because look at verse 18. Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you 
my faith. Notice it's not saying, show God your faith apart from works. God will show you, right? This is chiefly about how human beings look at each other. James is showing us positively. He's describing how when God, by faith alone, justifies a sinner, other benefits come along with that. And God begins to work in Christians and begins to change them and and cut off those rough edges. And it's a process. See this in Abraham's very life. We see a process. We see good deeds and then we see foolish deeds and we see stumbling and we see God bringing him back and on and on working this new life into his heart. Interesting that... Even though Paul tends to cite Genesis 15, James is aware of that too. James is citing Genesis 15 and verse 23 and saying the faith, the faith alone that justified Abraham is hereby finding its fulfillment as he's attesting to that with his thankful works of gratitude. It's an important topic. It's we're spending a few moments on that because of what James is saying about this passage. And so on the one hand, we, we see how the New Testament looks back on this story to illustrate what God is doing in our lives. But there's another thing. There's another reason Christians don't buy into that expression of Immanuel Kant, and it's because Genesis 22 really is one of the most clear Old Testament snapshots of the gospel itself that we can find. Genesis 22 contains the heart of the Christian faith, friends. Just as God provides Abraham with a substitute sacrifice so that Isaac need not die, the Father provided our Lord Jesus Christ as a substitute sacrifice so that sinners like you and me need not die. This morning we're going to look at this theme from verse 8. Sort of beats us over the head. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. That's what this whole passage hangs on. We're going to look at three things. Abraham's test of faith. Second, Abraham's confident compliance. And third, we will consider God's provision and promise. And so Abraham's test of faith. Passage back in Genesis 22 uh, does open with those famous words that after these things God tested Abraham. And on the surface, this, this might not strike us as very odd after all. Uh, testing is a common theme in Scripture. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And yet it's interesting to see how ominous this very test is because in verse 2 we see him saying, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now that is staggering. You can almost imagine Abraham saying, do what now? What kind of a request is this? It's hard for us to imagine how we'd feel at this point. And the matter of fact, minimalist recounting of Abraham's actions in verse 3 give us next to no indication of how Abraham is even thinking about this, how Abraham is processing. And look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Boom, 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 boom. Here's the thing, though. The way Genesis 2 reads actually is designed to arrest our attention. This may surprise you, but in verse 2, the Hebrew phrase, go, is actually not a very common one. 
In fact, there's only one other occurrence where we hear this Hebrew, lech lecha, go. And it is in Genesis 12, verse 1. Where there we read, now the Lord said to Abram, go, lech lecha, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Do you see what's going on here? We're, we're back where it all began. God's, God's relationship with Abram began with a command for him to go, to walk by faith, not by sight, to go not to a land you're familiar with, Abram, but to a land I will show you. A very strange and unknown place, but trust me. Chapter 12, Abram was to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house. We see a narrowing of specification there. And here in Genesis 22, we see the same narrowing of these things. Take your son, your only son, different Hebrew word, the one you love. What's key is there's something consummate of happening here. We're, we're, we're seemingly at the, at the culminating event now of Abram's entire journey in light of God's promise. Although a fourth term is added here as well. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. That addition is crushing, narratively speaking. One writer even says, the man who gave up his father's house must now give up the son on whom he has staked his life. Remember, just one chapter earlier, in the context of sending out Hagar and Ishmael, his, his son by his concubine, God explicitly stated to him, Abraham, it is through Isaac that your offspring by, will be named, and yet here, Isaac is named now as the one to be sacrificed. I mean, is God changing the terms of the covenant? Is God showing himself to be just as fickle as the pantheon of Greek gods who day by day live to torment and, and play jokes on people? Abram's staccato, speechless actions of verse 3 show him obeying and yet give us next to no insight into what he's thinking. And so we're left to wonder, aren't we? What is going on in his mind? Before we move on, I, I do want us to think more about God testing. God testing Abraham, yes, but God testing other people in Scripture. Indeed, God testing us. Usually, I don't, I don't know if you're like this, but when you think of testing, I usually think of, oh, here comes something that might expose me. Here comes something that I might fail, right? We tend to, to associate tests as really designed to expose our weakness. Of course, good teachers want to know what our weaknesses are because they want to know how best to teach us. And so at its best, a, a test can, can reveal that kind of thing. But the thing about that is that association of tests with failure is not exactly what Scripture wants us to do. In Scripture, God tests his people because he wants to give them a venue to display success, a venue wherein they can receive his acclaim and his blessing. Let me give you a few examples. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses warns Israel not to fall into pride and, and forget the Lord. And listen, he, he, he gives them a recounting in chapter 8, in verses 14 to 16, of what he has done in the wilderness and how he delivered them from Egypt. And then it says, he... He, he did all these things that he might humble you and test you. Why? To do you good in the end. God tests Israel to do her well. 
Apostle Peter notes kind of a similar thing in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9. You don't have to turn there right now, but, but give this a, a read later when you have a chance. Because the apostle shows that God's ultimate intended outcome of the trials and testing that he permits us to face is this, in what is in our, he's, Peter's talking about our imperishable inheritance that is our salvation. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, that proof may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing why God tests us? That our faith may be proved genuine. And look how he goes on. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I think that's interesting how this testing that James speaks of also speaks of living by faith and not by sight too. Even in the Garden of Eden, friends, when Adam and Eve received that prohibition, do not eat of the fruit of the tree, Ultimately, even this was given so that when tempted by God's enemy, the serpent, Adam and Eve, might display faith in God's word, might cast the serpent from Eden in the name of God, and then receive eternal life by eating of the tree of life. Even the prohibition in the garden was a venue for Adam and Eve's success. Unfortunately, it did turn into a place of great failure. The thing is, though, many modern-day Kantians misunderstand this. They misunderstand that God tests us for our good, not our failure. But modern-day Kantians also fail to consider the very thing that motivated Abraham. Right? This was no blind obedience to a murderous, uh, murderous request. Abraham was not, uh, was not experiencing Stockholm Syndrome, enabling his abuser by no means brings us to our second point, Abraham's confident compliance. Now, it's easy for us when we read Genesis 22, again, because of its literary power, it's easy for us to sort of existentialize it. Uh, But we have to make sure that we don't become unduly focused on the emotional angst of this passage. Okay, There certainly is emotional angst, but as we noted above, the narrator is really reticent to provide any details for the kinds of emotional and existential questions we naturally bring to a story like this. But this reminds us of something very important when we read passages like this. We need to be careful when we see an emotionally charged passage like this. We need to be careful not to miss the more pressing theological point of the text. Now, Sometimes theology just seems like a luxury, right? What matters most is real life. If I've got time for some theology, fine, pastor, I'll go do that. And yet here in Genesis 2, real life is unfolding chiefly in the service of theology. And in fact, real life is unfolding chiefly to draw attention to theology. Now before we look at Abraham's confidence, let's let's look at his compliance. Verse 3, God said, take your son and go. And what happens? Verse 3 shows him rising earlier and doing, early and doing precisely that. 
And this is also what we saw back in chapter 1, what we considered last week. Remember in 12 verse 1, God said go, and in 12 verse 4, it showed Abram's immediate response, so Abram went. And in both of these cases, Abram is the faithful servant of the Lord. He's the one who's ready to answer the call. Go, God says. Abraham, God says. And he says, here I am. Verse 4, Abraham is complying. He sees in the distance the region of Moriah and yet does not lose heart. He carries on. And even after a heart-wrenching dialogue in verses 7 and 8, he carries on. We'll look at that dialogue in just a minute because it's important. And in the end, in verses 9 and 10, Abraham builds an altar, binds Isaac to it, raises the knife. We have that same staccato, speechless litany of actions just like we saw in verse 3. And interestingly, not a peep from Isaac either. Isaac resembles another silent, submissive, sacrificial victim as well. The suffering servant of Isaiah Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But not only does Isaac foreshadow what comes and is prophesied in Isaiah, but ultimately Isaac resembles our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was ultimately depicted in Isaiah's prophecy. Who was ultimately prophesied about in the servant songs. So Abraham is compliant, but friends, we need to see that Abraham had a confident compliance. We need to look at the core of the section in verses 4 to 8. If you turn there again, Genesis 22 verse 4, on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Do you find it strange what Abraham said to those young men that were with him? I and the boy will come back again to you? A lot of people wonder what, what Abraham was doing with that. I mean, was he, was he, was he lying to them just to, in case they try to stop him? Was he lying to them just so that he didn't get Isaac all, all riled up and, and said Isaac didn't try to bolt or anything? Maybe, maybe Abram was just expressing a pipe dream of hope, right? Like, like, uh, like our children do uh, when they think that if they say it enough times, then it'll come true. I'm going to have ice cream for dinner. I'm going to have ice cream for dinner. Or I'm going to get that hot racing bike for Christmas. I'm going to get that hot racing bike for Christmas. If you say it enough times, it'll happen, right? You know, the narrative emphasizes the conversation in verses 7 and 8 that we read. I don't know if you caught that, but there was a repeated phrase. Hebrew writers, keep in mind, didn't have a control B on their word processor that would make the font bold. 
They couldn't take their mouse and click on the words and highlight them yellow. But Hebrew writers used a lot of other techniques. And one way that they would highlight something is by using a repeated phrase. And we find that at the end of verse 6, so they went both of them together. And then at the end of verse 8, so they went both of them together. And that brackets out the center of what the writer wants you to see. And what is it? It is their dialogue. And how does that dialogue culminate? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham had confidence. Abraham could speak the way he did to his young men because he had confidence that God would provide a substitute. But where did that come from? Why would he have such confidence? Think of this. Throughout Abraham's walk of faith, Yahweh promised and re-promised that Abraham would receive the land of promise, that he would receive a vast number of descendants, including royal descendants, that, that Abraham would be blessed so that in turn he might be a blessing for the world. Those three themes were repeated over and over again. In Genesis 15, verse 2, when Abram doubted the promise because Sarah was barren and because he was old, God insisted in 15, verse 4, your very own son will be your heir, Abraham. And in Genesis 17, verses 15 to 21, when Abraham doubted that God could provide a son by Sarah and that he offered instead, here, use Ishmael. God insisted, no, a son will be born to Sarah. And in verse 19, God explicitly said, your son who will be the heir will be named Isaac. And in 21 verse 12, when Abraham worried about sending Hagar and Ishmael, well, after all, you can imagine Abraham thinking, what if something happens to Isaac? Shouldn't Ishmael at least be the backup son that will help out God's plan? Even then, God reiterated to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's important that we keep that in mind, friends. Abraham had regular, direct, revelatory communication from God, insisting that through Isaac he would keep his promises. God's words were not ambiguous. They were not easily misunderstood. They were not over-interpreted. On a few occasions, remember, God even appeared to Abraham in human form. Significant that we find this in Genesis 18, verses 22 to 23, where Abraham recognized this figure before him as none other than Yahweh himself, went and stood before him, drew near to him, and spoke to him. You see, friends, this is the God who spoke these words. This God, in this form, spoke vivid, non-ambiguous, divine words of promise about Isaac. And I stress all this because when we over-emotionalize the story, we can lose sight of that fact. Unlike you and me, Abraham was a prophet. So we read about in Genesis 20, verse 7. And as such, God spoke to Abraham directly. God manifested himself to Abraham directly and plainly declared to him, I will keep my promise to you through Isaac. So why was Abram able to speak with such confidence to his young man? Why was he able to speak so confidently to Isaac that God would provide the lamb? Because all the way through to the end, God was revealing 
this truth to him. God was speaking revelatory, covenant speech, swearing on oath that he would give to Abraham what he promised in precisely the way he promised, namely through Isaac. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11 a moment, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, we find the writer of Hebrews telling us what Abraham was thinking. You'll find this on page 1,195 if you're using the Bible in the bench. Hebrews chapter 11 What Abraham had going through his mind as he complied with God's instructions, we find in verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he has tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to this. He considered, you want to know what Abraham was thinking? Hebrews tells us, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Did you hear that? Why was he confident? Because God had insisted that he would be faithful, and he believed that he would even raise Isaac from the dead. Even if the knife had killed Isaac, God would have raised him, and fulfilled his promise through a resurrected Isaac. Isaac was as good as dead. And yet Abraham returned to his young men with Isaac. He did indeed, just like Hebrews says, figuratively speaking, receive him back from the dead. Third and final point this morning. God's provision and promise. Of course, we've already sort of been considering some of God's provision, haven't we? Because we've, we've seen what happened, how, how the hand was stayed. But we do need to look at a few more details. God did speak from heaven in the form of the angel of the Lord, saying, stop. God told him the test was successful. God demonstrated that Abraham was the obedient servant. Through testing him, God was able to show that Abraham was the right one who would carry forward his redemptive plan. That Abraham performed the task that Yahweh had appointed for him in the faith and in the strength that Yahweh himself had provided for him. Okay? But God also provided precisely what Abraham believed he would. He provided a substitute. Remember back in verse 8, he said that God would provide for himself the lamb. And if we go to verse 13, we see Abraham receiving precisely that. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. That might throw you a little. Well, I thought he was expecting a lamb. Why did he get a ram? Granted, they're different animals, but this is no accident. This is no slip of the hand. Because the last time this Hebrew animal, this Hebrew word describing a ram was mentioned is in Genesis 15, verse 9. There in Genesis 15, verse 9, a ram died to cut the covenant promise. And now here a ram dies that the covenant blessings may indeed be fulfilled as promised. What a reversal. 
In fact, what a reversal to even look at the story in verse 4. Abraham lifted his eyes and saw Moriah. He saw covenant uncertainty. And yet in verse 13, Abraham lifts his eyes again and now sees covenant certainty. He sees the animal used to make the covenant, provided now to advance the covenant. Do you see God's faithfulness pounding Abraham over and over, washing over him, roller after roller after roller? And verse 13 contains that most crucial theological phrase, why this passage is at the heart of our faith, brothers and sisters. Abraham offered the ram instead of his son. There's no throwaway phrase. It's a profound theological reality which drives us forward in history to Jesus Christ. The New Testament repeatedly says that Christ died in our place. We could spend the next 30 minutes reading passages, things like Mark 10 verse 45, things like 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, Titus 2 verse 14 to just list a few. And here we have a picture of that very reality the life of faith that is grounded in Abraham, the man of faith, and is one that rests in the reality that a substitute has been provided. New Testament also describes our Lord Jesus Christ as that spotless lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, when something happens to you and you kind of give a recounting of it, and we always want to sort of make sure we, we, we front the take-home, you know, that what we really want people to know about what happened in our trip to the Indiana Dunes or what really was important about our trip downtown the other week. I find it interesting to see what Abraham really wanted memorialized about this event. Look at verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Interesting, huh? That even a proverb was created, that was recited even up to the days of Moses, penning down the words of the Pentateuch. On the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Well, what does this all mean for us? I'm struck by the language, especially of verses 16 and 18. Let me read that section there. Starting in verse 16, the angel, I'm sorry, in the, so the, in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, verse 16, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring, there's that promise of seed, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, there's that, that theme of land. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, there's that theme of blessing, because you have obeyed my voice. Why can we have confidence that these three promises are still functioning today? Why can we gather here in, in Gary with confidence that God will see these promises through to the end? This new creation fulfillment of the land promise? This fulfillment of seed, of offspring promise that we find in Christ? that The blessing that we receive and convey? Why can we have confidence? Verse 16 says, because Abraham did this. Verse 18, Abraham obeyed God's voice. He kept these things in motion. 
And it's because of this line of faith begun with Abraham, Christ entered history. Christ rendered a better obedience than Abraham could ever offer. A meritorious obedience where he secured righteousness for you and me. Verse 16 says that God swore by himself that he would surely bring about this covenant promise because of Abraham's great act. Let me have you turn one last place this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. The fact that we're turning so much shows you how important this is to the New Testament writers. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20 is going to to help us see this morning what this reality means to us today. Find this on page 1190. Starting at verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things by which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Let me read that again because it's so powerful. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, reference to the tabernacle, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here is our confidence, fellow Christian. Christ has accomplished these very things and provided this anchor for our soul in time of storm, an anchor that will never give way, an anchor that will never involve the ship of your life crashing upon the rocks and you having to abandon ship. A steadfast anchor for our soul, an anchor lodged in the Holy of Holies itself in heavenly places where our great high priest Jesus Christ has brought yours and my name into the very presence of God. Friends, God spared Isaac. God spared Abraham's beloved son and ensured the covenant promises would advance. But keep in mind, this ultimately involved God not sparing his own beloved son so that he might fulfill those covenant promises. Romans 8 verse 31 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Fellow Christian, this morning rest your hearts in that. Rest your hopes in that. Rest your confidence in that. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are confronted with such a powerful and profound reality in these verses. And even as we reflect on the great 
cost it must have been to be told to offer up his son. Yet you have brought us well beyond the emotional response into that great place of trust, seeing that our Savior, who was not spared, did indeed come back from death in the resurrection and has guaranteed that we too will not remain dead. That when time comes for us to close our eyes that final time, we will open them in your presence awaiting that day when the graves will crack open and bodies will raise from the dead where we will gather in your presence forevermore in a new creation, singing praise to your blessed name. Thank you, O God. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.